creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you are listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I am your host, Danny J. Pizza. And today on the show, it's it's hard to say it like that. This roll right into regular talking. But today on the show, I want to talk about this, this notion of, you know, do you ever feel like you look out and there are people whose work is as good as yours, the same level of quality, but they're just crushing you. And you're like, what is wrong with my work? And you go back to the lab again to like just fine tune details and just how, what could I do to make it better? Like what is wrong with it? But what if there's nothing wrong with it? What if what isn't the question? What if the the problem that needs to be solved is where? Not what is your work or what's wrong with it, but where is your work? Where are the spaces that you are creating and publishing your work? Because they matter as much as what your work is. Maybe the content isn't the problem. Let's get into what might be holding you back. Let's go. So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing six to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. So we're in the middle of a series we're calling Creative Zero to Hero. And it's just that I wanted to kind of explore the creative journey of going from having no skill, having never touched the instrument, all the way to reaching your potential. What are the key kind of phases in my experience and, you know, in the lives of the creative heroes that I have studied? What are the patterns of that journey? And so we've been exploring that. We started with number one, skill. We did number two, your story or, or your content or who are you? Like what's the substance of, of your work? And then three was style. How are you going to brand? How are you going to what veneer are you going to put on that content? And it should match or, or mismatch in interesting ways, that content. So we did that one, two, three. Now we're at four. In previous episodes, I was telling you this was going to be called setting. But as I dove into it, I decided to change the word to space. 
same concept, different uh, word. I liked the word space better for the things we were going to talk about it, the creative spaces that you explore your work and, and test your work and publish your work. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then we have two more pieces. The next one, psychology and six is going to be saying something. Okay. So those are the steps. That's, that's what we're doing today though. We're going to talk about creative spaces we're not going to talk about the what, we're not going to talk about the how, we're going to be talking about the where. Where does your work blossom? Where does it grow from? And then where does it go? Where do you put it out in the world? It actually really matters. And I think if you get this piece wrong, you can have amazing work and not get where you want to go and not actually connect and reach your creative potential. And so to explain kind of what I mean, I got to take you to a different kind of space, talking about the doctor's waiting room. And, you know, I remember when I was a little kid, the first book that I ever read by myself was a book called Green Eggs and Ham. I'm almost certain you've heard of it by Dr. Seuss. It's a classic. I highly recommend sitting down and, and uh, just diving into this literary literary classic. I love it. I still love it today. I remember thinking, though, like, Sam, there's this character, I am Sam. He's trying to feed green eggs and ham to this guy who doesn't want them. <laughs> and he's like, hey, do you want them in a box? Do you want them up a tree? How about in a house? How about with a mouse, with a fox? Like, you know, and I'm like, dude, I, I hate to break it to you, man. I don't think that the where is the problem. The location of these green eggs and ham are not the problem. I don't think anybody wants green eggs. It just sounds nasty. It's, it's what you're serving that's the problem. But then what happened? You know, I grew up and I, I noticed like maybe Sam is onto something. Think about the amazing restaurant that moved into the place in your city where there's been 50 other restaurants and even though the green eggs they served were delicious, what did they do? They closed up shop just a few months later. There's something cursed about that location, right? Like the, the, the context changes how we perceive the content for some reason. Green eggs hit differently in a box with a fox, man. You know, you know what I mean? Like it, I don't, I can't even fully explain it, but the where matters. Now, these days, when I think about green eggs and ham, I feel like it gets kind of soiled for me because every time I think about Sam, I am, I can't help but think about uh, rapper, musician, Will I Am. You know, Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas. Have you ever <laughs> heard of that guy? I feel like he stole Sam's whole vibe. And you're like, Andy, if Black Eyed Peas aren't for you, just let it go. Forget them. You don't need to ruin your cherished reading memory. But I'm like, I can't, I would love to move on from Will I Am, but I can't, I, can't, I cannot escape him because everywhere I go, I go to the grocery store and it's, I got a feeling, woohoo! And you're like exhausted from a long Monday at the office, starving, about to just rip into a bag of deli meat straight out of the packet for dinner. And you're like, look, man, Will, I got to tell you, I got a feeling that tonight is going to suck. So shut up. No, no, I don't want that. 
while I'm grocery shopping or you drop into the gas station and you're with your family and Fergie's talking about humps and you're with your kids and you're like, and the kids are like, what is this song about? You're like, uh, I can't, maybe it's camels. I don't know. Or Wednesdays. It's hump, hump day. Fergie loves Wednesdays. Most of the Black Eyed Peas songs are actually about days of the week, actually. You'll come to realize. Or you got a headache and you go to the pharmacy and you're like, man, my head is pounding and you step in and it's like, let's get it started. Let's get it started in here. And you're like, in here? In a pharmacy? Let's get it started in Walgreens? No. No, Will, I don't think I will. Will, I'm not going to get it started with a headache at Walgreens. I would not, could not while getting gas and not on the side of my lunch meat at Trader Joe's. Why? Because I do not like black-eyed peas and ham. Will, it's the music. It's, it's not where I'm listening to it. But then, in recent years, I've started to like uh, get into running over the past few years. I talk about it most episodes because I'm just bragging. I'm very proud that I run. I'm the slowest runner in the history of running. It is, I promise you, nothing to brag about. But as I go like run, and uh, I, I have to have music, I got into a little bit of a pickle because I'm a, you know, I listen to like Cocteau Twins, Modest Mouse, Waxahachie, uh, the band Y, which is our theme music of the show. Um, these are my go-tos, like some of my favorites. But that kind of music that works in the studio or at home doesn't always cut the mustard when you're going for a run. You're running music taste. If you don't know, if you don't run, um, for most people I've talked to, it's totally different. Your taste changes when you're out on a run. And so, you know, I stopped collecting that kind of hype music back with jock jams. Uh, probably volume five, I think, is where I probably got off that train. So I had to resort to like just going to Spotify running playlists. And so I'd stretch, I'd hit shuffle, and then I just set off. And then one day, I'm just about to go. I push shuffle and I hear it. Let's get it started. I'm like, Oh man, there he is with his little pitiful plate of black eyed peas. Will I am stares in my soul and pleads, would you, could you on a run? And I'm here with my finger, like right above the skip button, ready to just smash it. Like I would anywhere else at any other time. But then I realize, Hey, say, I do like black eyed peas. Yes, let, let's get it started. Monday, Tuesday, even hump day. And I just burst off the blocks for the best run of my life. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Sam I am and will I am know something that I think I need to remember. I think you should consider things hit different in different places. Context changes the way that we perceive content. My music, I love Black Eyed Peas on a run and I don't care who knows it. We get so caught up with the, why doesn't anyone love what I make on Instagram or, you know, in books or whatever? Why don't they love what I'm making? But maybe you got to quit asking yourself what they will love and instead ask yourself, where is the love? (laughs) Where is it? Maybe there's nothing wrong with art, the the art that you're hanging up, but maybe you're just hanging it up in the wrong place. 
Could they, would they in the clean box of a gallery? Could they, would they on TikTok? Could they, would they like your process videos or on YouTube or, um, you know, at the bookstore? Like, what is the context? Have you, have you given much thought to where your music exists and not just hyper-focused on making the what infinitely just three percent, you know, 0.732% better than it was. And so in this episode, what I want you to do is I, what I, and what I'm kind of doing a self audit of, and I've been thinking a lot about this recently is I want you to think about where are the spaces that my work exists? You know what, you know, where are, where's the space where I collect ideas? Where's the space where I throw them around? And where's the way I, the space where I test them? And where ultimately is the space where I publish my final work? And is that the right place to put them? And so in today's episode, I want you to explore, we're going to explore four different important spaces. These are spaces that have been essential to my creative practice. And also I've seen them come up over and over these, these very defined, dedicated, habitual spaces have shown up in so many of my creative heroes practices. And so I want you to take a look at what it would look like to make these spaces in your creative practice. Let's go. Okay, so we're going to explore four spaces that I am encouraging you to make space in your creative uh, practice for. And the first one is what I'm going to call deep space. space, deep space, what it is. It is a space for creating alone, working on the stuff that most likely the world will never see. This is just stuff where you're essentially wasting time. I almost called this one waste of space because the key to this space is giving yourself a window for wasting time making stuff, coming up with ideas, doodling, you know, writing, free writing, just letting whatever's going to happen in that creative zone happen without any need to capitalize on it in any other way, without any need to take it on to the further spaces. I think this is absolutely essential. The idea that you would make stuff that you know is probably for nothing, probably not good, is I think the most essential space in your practice. And, uh, you know, it took me years. It was outside of college. It was several, a couple years after college until I created this space. When, and I think it was just out of desperation realizing that this tight grip on my time this way that, you know, you know, I was working uh, a nearly full-time job. I had a kid. Um, we had all these responsibilities. I didn't have a load of time. And so the little time I did have, I couldn't afford to waste it. And then I realized I couldn't afford not to waste it. I couldn't afford to not, when I had the space, not go into the deep inner space, go deep inside and go in, in, in my alone time 
waste my time. And here's why I think this matters so much. It, it brings us to what a, a scientists call the equal odds rule. Okay. And I came across this in uh, neuropsychologist Rex Young's TED Talk. He's a guy who studies creativity in the brain and in psychology, the psychology of creativity. And uh, he said that there's this thing called the equal odds rule. And it, it says that the most influential scientists, the top scientists of all time, the ones that totally changed the game, they have the same odds of publishing a world-changing paper as anyone else in their field. They had the same odds. Meaning, when they publish a, a scientific paper about an idea, it's just as likely to be a world-changing idea as when anybody else publishes a paper. What's the difference if they are these hit makers in the science world. The difference is that they have way, way, way more duds. That they have so many papers that they publish that are no good, that lead to nothing. That essentially each paper, each creative act has, is a roll of the dice. It's just as likely to be a hit as any other one. And so when you understand, and this is what Rex Young calls an axiom of truth around creativity, meaning this is like one of the only things we know about creativity is that it is a quasi random act, that there is just this roll of the dice on whether what you're making is going to be good or not. And you can see how when you approach your creative space through this lens of this has to be great, how that's going against the very nature of reality and therefore locking you up and not allowing you to actually take a stab at rolling the dice. He then goes on to say like a simple way to think about this is um, Linus Pauling says, if you want to have good ideas, you must have many ideas. You know, experts in the field, each paper is just a roll of the dice I dove a little bit deeper. I watched this talk that was um, by Keith Simonton, who by any stretch of the imagination is a scientist who doesn't seem to need to make this accessible to accessible to the general public. It definitely was like inside baseball kind of psychology talk. And he says this, and I don't worry because it didn't make any sense to me, but I just want to give you some of the key words out of here and I'm going to explain it. He said, this behavioral analysis supports the interference that, or the inference, see, I can't, I can't even read it. The inference that scientific creativity constitutes a form of constrained stochastic behavior. That is, it could be accurately modeled as a quasi-random combinatorial process. And Rex Young in his talk explains that through the lens of, if you want to have good ideas, you got to have a lot of ideas. And the quasi-random piece of these combinations that you're creating as you're making stuff, you have to have to accept and lean into that there is a serendipity. There, this is the magic. You know, creators of all time have always talked about the muse and the mystery and the magic and channeling and just all of these like mysterious ways to think about creative work. And I think that this is what they're getting at. They're getting at the fact that you can't show up in, in, at your drawing table and make a gem every single time. 
that there is a component that is out of your control. But the thing you can control is showing up in the, having this space, this rolling of the dice, this messing around, this place where you're willing to make trash. You can control rolling the dice over as many times as you can. You know, later, I believe it's in Keith Simonton's talk, he goes on to talk about how like, there's something like 18,000 pieces of Picasso out there. And they're not all Guernica. Like they're not all treasures. You know, he became Picasso by making 18,000 pieces. And so some examples of what this deep space is for other creators, you know, it might be your notes app. That might be the space where you, where you do this, you know, writers, comedians, you hear them all the time talking about Julia Cameron's morning pages, which is just basically a free writing exercise. We have to write three longhand uh, pieces of paper out every morning. And you, and the only goal is to write and you just download what's going on from the inside of you with absolutely zero judgment and absolutely zero uh, intention to use it. You might actually stumble upon stuff and use it, but that's not the point. The point is to roll the dice. Now, this might be a sketchbook for you. Illustrator Darren Booth, who's a friend of mine on TikTok, was recently talking about how it's peculiar that he's an illustrator for a living. He's a visual artist and he is not a visual thinker. He actually cannot think of images in his brain. And so for him, the page is a place to think in visual ideas. And so that might be a sketchbook for you where you just, you, you show up in, in the key being that you make it a habit to show up and waste time in the sketchbook, knowing that the majority of what you do is not going to be for anything. For me personally, this deep space happens in the bathtub, as I also talk about on most episodes of the show. Um, and I was encouraged by, while doing this research, I ran into this book, Margaret A. Bowden's book, The Creative Mind, Myths and Mechanisms. Um, and she coined this idea, the bath, the bed, and the bus. And this deep space often happens in this wondering mind, just like no consequence um, while you're doing the dishes, um, that kind of thing. While you're in the bath, the bed, or the bus, these things just can have, these eureka moments can just come to you. And, you know, Einstein is famous for coming up with uh, the theory of relativity at his job at the patent office, just daydreaming. Another one that they cite is Archimedes, he discovered that you could get the volume of complex objects by displacing them in water when he was sat in the bath. I think this, the essential key part of deep space is that you have a space in your practice to waste time. This is the, the deep space is the waste of space. You know, Carly Rae Jepsen, her latest album has 15 songs on it and she wrote 90 songs for that album. Carly Rae Jepsen might not be better than any other songwriter, but the reason why Call Me Maybe exists is because she wrote more songs than any of her contemporaries. And so how can you create some space in your every day or in your every week to waste time? You know, depending on your medium, uh, your medium will determine what that space is for you. If it's a sketchbook, if it's the notes app, 
um, if it's the it's voice memos, it could be anything. And actually, sometimes it's interesting if there's just a synesthesia kind of thing. Back to my uh, buddy Darren Booth, he said he doesn't even have a sketchbook. He writes notes down because they, his ideas come to him in words. And so for him, it's the notes app. There's no judgment about what it is, but I think what matters is that you have a habit and a practice and that you make routine space for wasting time in the deep space. All right, number one was deep space. Number two is safe space. What is safe space? It is a place in time for soundboarding with a peer. You know, a place where you can throw around ideas that are probably terrible, you know, things that came from your deep space. Now you're taking them out of the privacy of your own bathtub and into the, at the lunch table and throwing it around and seeing like what hits, what sticks, what flops. You need a space where there's no pressure. You know, you hear comedians often, this phrase comes up. I think Jerry Seinfeld has a book called, Is This Anything? That's the, is this anything space. And the key to this space, in my opinion, is that you find a safe space with someone that, yes, won't judge you, but also, even more importantly, has the same taste as you. Because here's the thing. You know, you're making your work, you're doing this deep space stuff, you're making stuff, you're showing it to your spouse or friends or family or whoever, whoever's in the room, you'll show them their work. And the thing is, is if, if you're, if your creative outlet is a hot sauce and you're giving all these people in the room, a sample of this hot sauce, you know, those people might not like hot sauce and what's going to happen if they don't share your taste, what are they going to do? They're going to ask you to water it down. And so I think it is absolutely essential. Like I, 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 we talk about this so often because it's not only because it's super important, but because it's really hard. It is hard to find those friends. You know, people, you think of these bands, these, you know, people like the Rolling Stones and you think, man, they're Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are lucky to have found each other. Like that doesn't happen very often. You're not going to just stumble across, um, you know, you can count on your hand the time you accidentally connected with somebody who shares the same taste as you. But luckily, you don't have to wait to be lucky. You can actually make your own luck. You can go to the places where people are consuming that kind of hot sauce and start striking up conversations. And I highly recommend it because it's this idea of iron sharpening iron. It's this idea of, you know, at, at lunch back in the day in high school, I remember what I like to eat at lunch. Okay. It's I, in retrospect, this is disgusting, but I would still eat it. Um, <laughs> they had Bosco sticks every day. It's, it's bread stick with cheese in it. And then I would <laughs> dip it in nacho cheese. It's gross. But, and I, you know, when I would do that at this table, I would get all this pushback and, and, and judgment. And I had to find where are the other people that are eating the same thing so we can enjoy our Bosco sticks and cheese and, and it's so, it's so awful. And, um, in peace, right. Then guess what? You're sat around at that lunch table long enough. They're like, Hey, try it with sour cream. Now you're oh, all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, that's lighting me up. You're throwing things around your soundboard and you're having creative breakthroughs. Sour cream's even better. 
<laughs> you got that that you got to have that safe space, that lunch table where the people like what you like. Because what happens is they spur you on. Because when, you know, when you are constantly getting people to taste your creative work that don't share your taste, you're you're losing your faith in your ability to create great stuff. But when you make something, you know, I have gone out of my way to find people who have the same taste in storytelling that I do so that when I write a story and I share it with them, I can see on their face whether it hit those creative taste buds and lit them up because there are other people who I'll tell the same story and they're like, you know, I, I don't like the color of that person's coat. And you're like, that has nothing to do with it. Like what? No, that's not what it's about. They're trying to water down my hot sauce, man. You got to find those people. Because what happens if you don't is you start doubting your green eggs and ham. You start thinking, like, if, if you give it a taste to everybody and they're like, meh, they're okay, you're not going to share it with the world. You're not going to take it to the next space. But if you share it with somebody who loves what you love and they're telling you, like, this has got the secret sauce. This has the X factor. This has that thing we're looking for. You're going to be emboldened to, to do whatever it takes to do the work to get it to the next level and get it into that next space. And so, you know, when I think of examples for this, I'm thinking, you know, it happens. Safe spaces can be in a car or in a coffee shop. I'm thinking like comedians in cars getting coffee back to Jerry Seinfeld, this idea of like, having those friends that you can go to the coffee shop with and talk about stuff and say, is this anything, you know, it can be a, that casual, but can also, you can systematize this thing and make it a habit and make it a weekly podcast. Like Mike Birbiglia does I, probably my favorite podcast right now. Um, working it out where two comedians throw back new material in a safe space where they're just like, you know, soundboarding scene. And you can hear like, as they're doing their bits, they're kind of, noticing, okay, that laugh was, um, like, a ha ha, that's funny. And then there's a laugh where it's like, oh man, that just hit me upside the head. And you're like, okay, it gives me something to work with. Um, it gives me something to build on. You can see them like adding tags to the joke in real time. If it hits in the right way and it's egging them on, it's spurring them on, it's building their confidence in the bit to take it further and go further. It's essential to, for me, to, having those conversations helps me dig into my practice so much deeper and it helps me show up with the confidence of like, look, this might not be for everybody, but I know some of you people in here are going to freaking love this thing. And you need that kind of energy if you're going to take it to the next level. But this can also just be a monthly call with a, a select group of people that you, you know, set up a, a habit of soundboarding with. It can be like the mastermind thing where each one of you gets a hot spot, gets in the hot seat on one week a month and you throw around ideas and see how they hit. You know, but the essential piece to this safe space is that you find these people. Don't settle for people that kind of like what you like. There are people with the exact same taste bud tongue print that you have that are that are going to that love what you love and get why your favorite things are your favorite things like exactly. It's just a bonding experience. You need those people in your life, man, to even just be a happy, thriving person. In my opinion, you need that. You feel seen. You feel understood. And so go to the online meetups, the workshops that's, I've found even like workshops online that I wasn't sure that I needed, but I knew this is where those people are going to be. And I can find those people conferences, sign up to the newsletter. So you're, you're in the know of where these people are 
congregating locally, globally, classes, you know, do all of those things until you find these people that you can have this safe, creative space with. Okay, we had deep space, number one. Number two, safe space. Number three is going to be, of course, reciprocal space, which everybody knows the reciprocal lattice is defined as the set of wave vectors of a plane waves in the Fourier series of any function whose periodicity is compatible with that of an initial direct lattice in real space. Everybody we all know that. I have no idea what I didn't even say half those words. But reciprocal space, we'll call it, we'll call it give and take space. How about that? The, number three is the give and take space, and this is a space where you're moving it out of the comfort of the safe space. You've you've soundboarded. You're like, I know some of these things are are good. Like you know, you've shown some of your deep space doodles into in the safe space area, and you're like, I think this is worth moving forward with. So you take it to the give and take space. The give and take space is a place where this is where you're getting it in front of people before you're publishing it, before it finds its final resting space. (laughs) The last space we're going to talk about. This is a place in between start and finish where you're doing a, a kind of soft launch publish, a beta, if you will, and you're getting it out in front of people. And the key to this is you're testing the material. You're trying to figure out if you can verify if, in fact, you were onto something in real time with real people in a way that you can get a sense of and measure either qualitatively or quantitatively. You're trying to get that stuff in front of people. And it's a give and take space because you are giving them value. You know, we've talked about this one a million times on the show, the idea of writing on stage, huge believer in it. It's this thing that comedians, their number three, their give and take space is the comedy clubs where they have you lock up your phone so you can't publish this thing out into the global internet, but just they show up to give you some laughs, but also take from you. They're going to be taking notes from you. They're going to take how you respond. And it's not what they're giving isn't their full offering. And so you got to find a give and take space. You know, what's essential about this, I think, is this, this idea of verification. Stage four of social psychologists, um, Graham Wallace's four stages of the creative process. He talks about you got to prepare, which is the research. You got to incubate, like let it swirl around in the old subconscious. You, you got to have that illumination, aha moment. That's the third one. And the fourth one is verification. He puts verification, you know, peer review in the actual process itself, like the creative process isn't over until it's been evaluated. And it's this idea as these, you know, we're getting deep in the science of creativity today. I hope you don't mind. It's kind of, I get super excited about this kind of thing, but they, all these scientists are using these working definitions of creativity. They're all a little bit different. I think my favorite one was there's the, uh, the balance of useful, novel and surprising like has to have all three of these elements to be deemed a creative act but i think the interesting thing about that is uh 
in order to know if this novel idea you came up with has any utility, you has any usefulness, you need to get it in front of people. You need to verify it. You need to uh, get a peer review, a panel of people that can look at it and be like, meh, meh, or yeah, or whatever they might say. And some examples of this, we talked about writing on stage with comedians. We've also talked about how authors like David Sedaris on the book tour will actually read his next book out of his journal and like cross stuff off in real time. I've seen Jimmy Carr in a comedy club in LA actually come out with a clipboard and read a joke and then either cross it off or check mark it. And they're verifying like, am I onto something or not? They're not asking the audience what's funny. They're asking the audience, is this funny? Cause I thought it was funny. Or did you get why it was funny? Was I able to communicate what was funny about this? Or do I need to go back to the drawing board? But it's not just comedians that do this. There are uh, so many musicians that do this. And I think for musicians, often the give and take space is their side bands. You know, Bon Iver has these incredible albums that are just his fans and, and the critics. He's one of the critical darlings, has these like impeccable, perfect albums in, in many people's opinions. And yet he has gobs and gobs and gobs of side bands with just average albums, just albums that are just playing, you know, they're, they're both deep, safe, deep space, safe spaces and give and take space. Cause he's putting them out there in real world and seeing like what catches on, what doesn't, what, what's working, what's not. And having that place to give and take. Sufjan Stevens is another one of those has a ton of side projects, weird projects. It's not all about just giving. It's also asking something of his super fans to like ch chime in and, and see what resonates. And I think about Jamie XX of the band, the XX British band, big fan of them. You know, I think they got into, I think a self-described sophomore slump in their second album. It wasn't everything they wanted it to be. They felt kind of unsure. Jamie XX does a solo album and I listen to the album and he adds these uh, samples to the stuff he's doing and he's collaborating with one of his band members on a particular song. And I was like, oh man, this is like taking the XX to the next level. And I was praying to the gods of music, like, please let them use samples in the next XX album. And then they did. And it was phenomenal. So he used that sideband, that solo project as a give and take space, a place to explore in real time with real people. For me personally, I've told you about this a few times, this idea of like, I did a daily drawing project, 260 characters, drew 260 characters, a character every day, then whittled that down. That was a give and take project. That was a, that Tumblr was a space for me to give and also receive like what, which of these is like resonating? What, what feels right? And those like only 30 of those 260 characters went on to be on my Invisible Things poster. And you know, 40 episode art pieces every year for the podcast turned into a 12 page calendar. Um, so where is your give and take space? If you're a writer, it might be a blog or an email newsletter. And you just kind of monitor like which of these things needs to be turned into a book, which of these things needs to get published in a magazine. I think it's essential to have that space in your practice. All right, and finally, I wanted to call this dead space, but my um, <laughs> agent, Ryan, said that was too negative because it's where, you know, all the way up to now, your work is in, it's a living document. It's something that you're tweaking, working, and then 
the last space is the place where it goes to die. The place where it's fi finalized. We're going to call that outer space. Outer space is the place where you publish your finished work. And I think it's essential that for, for my creative practice, it is essential. I'll show you hear how I took it back. Cause I, I don't, I don't believe at all that there are these absolute truths of like, you have to have this. No, I don't think you have to have this. I recommend it. It's been really helpful to me. I've seen a lot of artists have this space in their work and I've seen it kind of correlate with the brain science of, of creativity. And um, the reason, the key to having a place where you publish work that is done that you do not touch again, in my opinion, is that it forces you to access the editing function in your brain. Now, I don't understand brain science really at all, but what I've read and what I've experienced is, you know, I actually think like being creative is mastering these four spaces as really an analog for the four spaces in your head, you know, in your brain, the different areas of your brain, creating physical spaces are these metaphors for hacking your brain into a particular place. Because when you're in deep space in the bathtub, thinking random thoughts, you're thinking, whatever I'm doing in here has no consequence. And what you're doing by doing that is you're accessing the space of your brain where you're playing, where you're not trying to solve the problem. You know, one of the things they talk about in the research is this idea of like creative geniuses. They're these people that are okay sitting in the problem. They're okay playing with the problem instead of trying to solve it. And to access that part of your brain, you go to a physical space to access that space in your head where you play. Does that make sense? There's a connection of that. And, and, and what the, for the outer space, the dead space, the space where your work goes to die, the, the space where you publish your work, this is helping you access the space in your head that is editing, which I believe is a, a left brain function. I really think like there's a process in creativity where your left brain kind of analytical self creates constraints, rules to push up against, to springboard your creativity. And then you got to shut that side off and say, look, I'm not going to judge with the left brain as I go play. I'm just going to go have some fun. I'm going to mess around and I'm going to access the pattern seeking nonverbal right side, which by the way, Rex Young doesn't like the left and right side brain stuff. He thinks it gets too much play. I'm hoping, I'm hoping if he ever hears this, that he knows that I've tried. I've listened to lots of podcasts and read a lot about left and right brain stuff. And I hope some of that is accurate, but either way, it's a picture for us to all kind of think about which act where we're accessing um, these different parts of ourselves internally. And, and I think for me, I like to think of it like I'm going left brain, setting up all the parameters, right brain, having a playtime, nothing matters, waste time, whatever. And then left brain comes back at the end when you're coming to edit, you know, writers will say you can't write and edit at the same time. I like to think like Michael Jordan can't get in the zone if he's refing the game, if he's constantly picking apart, if he's trying to access both parts of his brain of what's the right thing to do. And it's the same thing of like pitchers get the yips. 
They forget how to pitch baseballs because they're accessing the left part of their brain that's saying, don't forget to move that finger slightly at this 90 degree angle while you let go of the ball. They're thinking about pitching instead of pitching, instead of flowing. And so these spaces actually, for me, they're a brain hack of how to get into these various things internally and become the master of your own mind. That's a true mastermind. Um, going into mad scientist territory or more like idiot science scientist territory. But I think it's true. And I, I think like um, you need the left brain to come back and say, which songs are going to be on the album? Let's get the analytical mind. We went through the process of not judging anything. Now let's judge some things. It's time to pick and choose. And I've thought a lot about like creating from that place, creating from that space in your brain. It's like lifting, like creating from the ego, creating from the left brain. That's like, lifting with your back. It's like lifting with your muscles or your skeleton, your spine, instead of your muscles, instead of your legs, like instead of your core, like there's different parts of you. The same, you may be trying to complete the same function using totally different muscles. I hope that makes some sense. Examples, do you know the examples? Because this is what we think creativity is. I think most of us relegate creative space to just number four. We think we make albums, we make books, we make magazines, we make, you know, uh, comedy specials or, or final illustrations or whatever it is. But I, from, you know, studying my heroes and, and, and developing my practice over the past, uh, you know, more than a decade, I've realized that it's just a small piece and it's an important piece, but maybe not for the reasons that we think it is. I think it's mainly important just to access that editing function, make some choices, use your taste and kind of uh, make some calls so you can learn the next time you go around. So you can kind of have a, uh, I think it's great to watch the tapes as long as you're not thinking about watching the tapes while you're playing the game. Comedians don't just have comedy specials. Of course they don't. They have the morning pages. They have podcasts. They have the club. And then they have the specials. You know, for me, I've got the bathtub. I've got the phone calls with friends. I've got the podcast. And then I've got classes or talks. You know, for me, the, uh, the podcast is a great example of what I think of as a number three give and take space. It's a space where each and every week I get to give some stuff to the listeners, hopefully, but I also am taking by the response and hearing what hits and, and watching which episodes take off and, and, and even just taking by, you know, the, the process of making this and putting it out there and seeing how it felt to put it out in the real world. And so what the, the, the best of the best stuff, I, it makes me think about illustrator, Christoph Neiman talking about, we, we talk about this all the time, this idea that you can't make great work all the time. You can, but if you're a pro, you can make good work all the time. And I never release a podcast that I don't think is good. But when something great comes along, then I think, you know what? That might be a class. Like, and I never want to release a class that's not great because I'm asking more. I'm, I'm actually um, asking more from somebody to, to take a class. And so, you know, what are these spaces so I want to leave you with a question and just do a little overview before we get the call to action, call to adventure, homework. We went through deep space, that's internal, deep time, inner space, plain waste of space. That's what number one is. Number two is safe space. It's a sounding board with people with the same taste as you. I'm starting to sound like Dr. Seuss. Taste space, safe space. 
<laughs> okay. Number three is the give and take space where you're giving to the audience something, but you're also taking something from them. You're taking their feedback. It's, it's not final work. Number four is outer space. It's where you, the space where you publish your work. It's the dead space. Those are the spaces. And as we go through those, I, I thought, you know, this, this uh, analysis of the podcast is interesting for me because it begs the question, you know, if the podcast is not the outer space, if it's not the published work, if it's number three, you know, when you're putting stuff online, when you're putting stuff on the internet, which one have you up to now which of these spaces have you correlated with cyberspace? Like, what is the internet for you? You know, do you think of the internet as publishing your work? I actually strongly believe that the internet is not a, uh, an ideal outer space. I think it can work at times. But I actually think the people that are crushing it the most in our modern times actually use the internet for all four of them. I have a feeling that this could open up your practice if you would allow yourself to show people in you creating in the deep space, showing them in the process, showing process videos, showing them before the thing's finished. Do you have spaces online in cyberspace? Cyberspace can get deep. It can be your sounding board. It can be your give and take. And yeah, sometimes it can be your outer space. But, you know, these people, they will they will use the Internet to soundboard to say, which options do you guys like? What do you think about this idea? Am I on to something? Is this anything? They'll let their audience chime in there. You know, they'll allow themselves not to look perfect. And the same goes for give and take and outer space and everything. And you might be like, Andy, okay, that's the problem with nowadays is that you can't, you know, you can't have any mystery to the thing. And, and I do think you need some boundaries. I do think you need to designate these spaces. But I would argue that if we go back to the equal odds rule and we look at scientists over history who were the creative geniuses, were the breakthrough people, they published more duds than anyone their outer space, their published works, they used those as deep space. They put out stuff that they're like, you know, I, I, I ran across this thing of Einstein, like I think the first paper he put out on relativity, the equation was such that they were like, by the way, this equation would mean that reality wouldn't exist. And so that's how bad this paper is. And I think you got to humble yourself. you got to allow yourself to show some of the seams, show some of your work, as Austin Kleon would say. you got to be comfortable with it. And it's not just because nowadays there's TikTok and YouTube and Reels and podcasts and all that stuff. It's not just because of now. It's because that with every roll of the dice, with every chance you take, you have a quasi-random chance of stumbling upon your greatest work of all time. And so you better shake that dice as much as you possibly can and do so in as many spaces as you possibly can. And so I encourage you at this point to just, if you don't have these spaces, get these spaces. And if you have these spaces, don't be precious about them. You know, these scientists, these YouTubers, these creators, the, they have the spaces, but they also blur the lines of what's appropriate in these spaces because their primary focus is to just roll that dice as many times as possible. A little homework, the call to action 
action, the call to adventure, what you can go say yes to right now and do with not a ton of time is what we're going to call the time space oasis. Been talking about spaces all day. Uh, A lot of this came from uh, John Cleese's uh, works on creativity in his talks. That's how I found some of these different pieces, diving into the studies that he got these ideas from. He recommends a time space oasis for every creator to have regular blocks of about an hour and a half. I try to do it every morning, uh, five days a week-ish, writing in my bathtub, just writing, free writing. And most of the stories we tell on the show, the best of the best of those things for me came from following tangents that I was wasting time with in the bath, thinking, you know, when I was writing about green eggs and ham, uh, and I thought, what does that make me think of? Will I am? And I thought, okay, will I am? And I just went down that road and, you know, four days out of the week that will I am doesn't go anywhere. And then this day, it just so happened that I realized that, oh, Black Eyed Peas, I have a weird relationship to space and where I listen to them and how it makes me feel different about their music, right? And that comes from the Time Space Oasis. And so this is just time. This is the deep space time. This is an hour and a half. You don't have to have ages. An hour and a half to waste. An hour and a half to play with a problem instead of trying to solve it. Might be in your sketchbook, might be in your voice memos, might be at the piano, you know, whatever it is, but just play, just see where it goes and expect to waste it, expect it to be a dud and then let it incubate as a whole other piece of this. Walk away and just see if it comes back, see if it, uh, you know, I've been increasingly interested in this idea of your subconscious goes to work on this um, as you go on your day, as you sleep at night. It's that playtime, it loves that. That's the raw material. It's a source material for your subconscious to be working on it. Next time you show up at the piano for your time space oasis, all of a sudden you're making a connection that you're like, how could this possibly be? It's because your your subconscious was working on it the whole time. You got to let that thing marinate. And, and the more times you show up to this thing, the more uh, time that your marination periods can can also be happening in between. Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our jingle and theme music. Huge thanks to Connor Jones and um, Connor Jones of Pinning Beautiful for editing this show. Huge thanks to Ryan Appleton and Sophie Miller and Katie Chandler, the rest of the team for assistance on content and all things Creative Pep Talk. And until we speak again, do whatever it takes to stay pepped up.